there. I'm Jay Goldstein, head of program at Petrie. I'm your host, and I'm happy to welcome you to our podcast. For those of you who don't know us, Petrie develops companies attacking the world's largest problems at the frontier of biology and engineering. This podcast is about spotlighting inspiring founders who are innovating in improving human health and sustainability. Today's episode is focused on intelligent design, synthetic biology that is catalyzing biotech, innovation, and our future. Over the next 30 minutes or so, we'll be talking to Alec Nielsen, founder of Asimov, which builds tools to program living cells. Their mammalian cell engineering platform advances the design and manufacture of biologics and gene therapies. We'll learn more about him as a founder, we'll take a deep dive into the science, we'll explore its impact on human health, and he'll give us three really concrete tips for founders. So let's dig in. Alec, it is great to have you with us here today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's start first by talking about your roots as a founder. How did you become a builder? How did you come to found Asimov? Let's start at the beginning. If you were to describe your childhood in three words, what would you describe it? Three words. Uh, wow. I don't know. I feel like we should maybe get my mom on this call. She might have a, a better three words. Uh, skateboarding. I was really into skateboarding. Um, I also like school and, you know, especially like science, math. I, I really liked physics. I actually didn't like biology very much um, until college. Um, and I, I have some theories why, but uh, I guess science, skateboarding and computers, um, you know, with the computer camp as a kid, fell in love with, you know, programming, uh, you know, learning to use languages like basic. Um, yeah, it's like a ton of fun. And it's, uh, you just have like this power at your fingertips. You can make computers do, you know, pretty incredible things by just typing. Uh, so yeah, science, computers, skateboarding. I love it. And talk to me, you said you didn't really get into biology until later. So what did you study and how did you get jazzed about biology? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the reason why biology didn't click for me in high school was it all felt kind of like random. And uh, like, you know, you learned about organelles and mitochondria being the powerhouse of the cell, but it wasn't until college when I took like a molecular biology class, when you started you know, learning about molecular machines, uh, evolution, of course, nothing makes sense in biology except in the light of evolution. Uh, and then it all kind of started to make sense. Um, you could understand how things worked. So in any case, in college, I went to the University of Washington in Seattle. I studied electrical engineering and bioengineering, became um, really fascinated by, uh, I think in some ways, the intersection of those two things. You know, where in electrical engineering, uh, there's, of course, uh, pretty amazing circuits that we have all around us in every aspect of our lives, to our smartphones, to, you know, our toasters, to uh, our consumer goods. And I really actually became uh, quite enamored with the design tools in uh, electrical and electronic engineering. And that, I think, um, played a big role in what I ended up doing for my PhD and beyond. Um, but at the same time, like, I, you know, I wanted to do bioengineering because in the abstract, I thought it sounded really cool. Right, like, like biology is this amazingly elegant and complex substrate for you know moving atoms around, and just like you know at a high level, like you could imagine if you could like harness that and engineer it, what incredible things could be possible in human health and materials and agriculture and you know everything. So when I was an undergrad, I started to get into research. Um, I got into the field synthetic biology through IGEM, the International Genetically Engineered Machines Competition. Um, you know, kind of the premier synthetic biology competition. That was like my first experience pipetting. Uh, it was a ton of fun. You know, we worked as a team on a project that like didn't quite pan out, didn't quite work, uh, but I was hooked, started doing research in some other labs at University of Washington and ultimately decided to go to grad school. 
I'm curious to hear, Alec, if you had a moment where you realized that you were an entrepreneur or something clicked and you're like, yeah, I guess I guess I want to build something. Yeah. Um, so, well, I went to grad school and I was on the academic path till the very end. Uh, you know, I planned to go do research. I really liked research. Um, and, you know, I joined Chris Boyd's lab and uh, the Boyd lab had already spun out a couple of companies um, by the time I had joined. So Pivot Bio, which is doing some really cool work and uh, fertilizer replacement using microbes, uh, as well as Bolt Threads, company uh, developing biomaterials. And so, you know, these are like older grad students and, you know, kind of look up to them. Um, so, you know, it was, it was in the back of my mind, uh, but I was, I was on the academic path. Um, but then, you know, I met up with some friends, uh, you know, and we decided to do like business plan competitions at MIT. So, you know, we like did the 100K competition. We did like the Sloan Healthcare competition um, on some kind of random projects and like microbes for animal feed, like chicken feed to reduce antibiotic usage, as well as... Um, some kind of harebrained schemes to reduce like food allergies using tolerogenic uh, commensal microbes and engineering them. And then towards the end of my PhD, uh, when things started to work, I got really excited about what it would look like to develop a computer-aided design platform for biotech, for industry. And, uh, you know, my thesis advisor, Chris Floyd, was incredibly supportive about that. You know, so my plan was like, all right, I'll go, uh, I'll go be a professor and I'll start this company on the side. And then, you know, over time, I just had uh, uh, more and more sleepless nights about whether that was the right choice. And I was egged on by people like Jamie Goldstein, who was the first venture capitalist I ever met and uh, convinced me to ultimately start a company instead. So I, I guess kind of, uh, you know, it, I was uh, exposed to it and it was fun to do business plan competitions. But honestly, um, if I could go back, I probably, you know, if I could tell my younger self something, it's like, uh, you know, think seriously about starting a company sooner than you did because, like I basically decided to start the company after I finished at MIT, which meant it was months uh, where like I didn't have a paycheck. We were putting together like, uh, you know, kind of like the business hypothesis, all of the fundraising materials. I think it was like six months uh, from like when I finished up, uh, you know, and my grad student stipend uh, was shut off and we got money in the bank from our from our seed round. So uh, do not recommend. So I want to transition a bit and talk about the science. To get real deep, we're going to get Dr. Tony Kulasa, one of our partners here at Petrie, to join the conversation and get a little technical. Thanks, Jay. So Alec, give us the pitch for what Asimov is doing today and tell us about the pathway for how you discover the application of these tools in that particular area. So the pitch, you know, our, our goal is to radically advance the state of genetic design. You go and you, you know, talk to scientists and engineers and industry and the process of them like designing a genetic system of developing a biotechnology product is incredibly ad hoc. Um, you know, often like you'll talk to like the, you know, quote unquote genetic engineers at a company and they're using like a set of like legacy plasmids and vectors and parts uh, because that's how it's always been done. If they do, you know, have the gumption to go try to develop something um, more precisely with an, ex you know, with you know, different parts. How's that done? You go and you reverse engineer genetic parts from scientific literature. And, or if you're lucky, like the DNA sequence is in the supplemental PDF and you can copy and paste that out. And this, you know, as a practicing uh, genetic engineer uh, for a long time, it's painful. Like your life as a synthetic biologist is um, really slow. 
really trial and error driven. And it's a lot of like inefficiently reinventing the wheel from other paper. That's not an engineering process at all. And so what we wanted to do was provide gold standard genetic, cellular and computational tools to solve some of the key challenges in industry, um, enabling design, simulation and debugging to accelerate you know, how fast uh, we can build biotechnology products, reduce the cost um, and make them better, right? Like there's just all types of application that require somewhat complex genetics, right? And I mean, you, you play this out to 50 years in the future, we wanna be able to design genomes from the ground up. Um, and like, we don't have the tools to do that, like not even close. So, you know, that's what we're doing at Asimov is developing a design platform um, and putting that in the hands of, you know, the end customer, the scientists and engineers in the biotechnology industry. In terms of like how we arrived at, um, you know, our initial set of applications. So when, you when we first started the company, uh, like, you know, right, right out of grad school, we didn't know that we were gonna be working on mammalian cells. Uh, we thought we'd be working in bacteria and yeast. We had some hypotheses uh, for you know, things that we would build, applications that we would tackle. And uh, we ended up being wrong about those. You know, we talked to a lot of companies, a lot of customers in biotech early on. And uh, you know, quite simply, there, there wasn't an obvious go-to-market um, for like a product like this. Right now, if you look over in the mammalian realm, there was something of an existence proof in that companies have been licensing mammalian cell lines to like manufacture therapeutics for decades. And so then we kind of, you know, took a step back and said, all right, what if we took that exact same model of licensing cell lines, but we started to optimize those cell lines using like genome engineering. What if we layered that in with you know, new types of capabilities like libraries of genetic parts to better control uh, you know, the cellular behavior for these applications and then wrap it all together with a computer aided design tool which is completely unfamiliar to people in industry but we think is inevitable from how we'll eventually design these systems. Uh, we wanna be able to design uh, complex genetic programs on a computer using libraries of you know, well-engineered characterized parts. We wanna be able to predict, simulate their function um, and then ultimately debug them when they behave unexpectedly. And so it really came down to, you know, there's huge technical need in therapeutics uh, currently on the design and the manufacturing side. I mean, some of the genetic engineering that's being done is like straight out of like the 1990s in terms of like using viral promoters that are known to be silenced um, and things like that. You know, one of the applications that we target is the manufacture of viral vectors for gene therapies, cell and gene therapies. So lentivirus and AAV uh, for ex vivo and in vivo gene therapy respectively. The manufacturing is a huge bottleneck here. Um, there's a massive gap between the demand for viral vector and uh, the global supply, like the bioreactor capacity to produce that viral vector. And part of the reason is that like the manufacturing technology is super old fashioned. Um, it's like often like adherent mammalian cell culture with transient transfection, uh, which is non-ideal for a number of reasons. So it was kind of a pretty fortuitous intersection, I think, between a technical need in this field uh, to improve manufacturing and especially for next generation modalities with an existence proof for a business model, namely cell line licensing that we were gonna piggyback off of and use almost as like a Trojan horse for this crazy computer to design concept. Yeah, I think this, this all originated out of the paper that you published in 2016 about the Cello platform. Can you walk us through 
the key results of that paper that ultimately framed your PhD thesis and then led to the creation of the company? Yeah, so the concept behind Shello was to build a platform that could design genetic circuits inside of cells. Genetic circuits are uh, networks of genes that do information processing so that the cell can like sense some env environmental conditions and regulate genes in response. Genetic circuits are of course ubiquitous in nature. Um, you know, every cell on the planet has genetic circuits that help it perceive environmental stimuli and regulate gene expression. And we wanna be able to engineer those for biotechnology applications. It's uh, technically challenged, challenging to build those because it requires a lot of moving parts. Um, like you need many different genetic components that can interact. You need them to interact in the right ways and like at the right level. So there's kind of a quantitative aspect to this. Um, you would never be able to like design these things by just, you know, like brute force, high throughput screening these things because the design space is too large. So you actually need computational tools to help you to simulate these things and to automate the design of these circuits. And, you know, we were inspired a lot by electronic design automation, which, you know, are the tools that are used by uh, people who design semiconductor circuits. And, you know, back to uh, what I was talking about from when I was an undergrad, like one of the best classes I ever took was on computer architecture, where over the course of uh, the semester, we built like an entire CPU from scratch on a computer uh, using tools like Verilog and Cadence from the logic gate up. So everything from like the arithmetic logic unit to memory, et cetera. And it was so satisfying to see that uh, all the way from like the bottom level on up to the full thing. And I think there's probably parallels there with why biology didn't click with me until I saw molecular biology. You wanna be able to see it from the most fine detail uh, to then understand every level on up to the full thing. So remarkable tools in electronics design. Um, and there's really like no tools in biotech that come close uh, to you know, the sophistication of electronic design automation tools. I mean, I think it's pretty uh, depressing in a way that like the one software tool that's used ubiquitously in biotech is a DNA sequence viewer, uh, which is software that allows you to, you know, visualize and annotate A's, T's, G's, and C's, but that's more like a word processor uh, than it is like true design software. So in Chris's lab, um, we developed this platform for designing uh, these complex genetic circuits. And uh, this was for bacteria and that formed the basis of cello. That was the main thrust of my PhD. And does that answer the question? Yeah. And I guess as, as you were starting to think about how you would design genetic circuits, how did you figure out what the right layer of abstraction was? I mean, maybe someone would argue you'd have to measure and model the cell at atomistic detail, or maybe at supermolecular detail, or maybe at you know the, the level of the genetics or the level of a ensemble of cells. How did you determine kind of where in that hierarchy that you need to write and you need to build the tools? Right. So, I mean, in some ways we wanted the simplest possible model that worked. And so, you know, atomistic isn't the right level of detail because, uh, you know, we weren't doing protein design. Instead, what we were doing were, was taking parts, uh, mining them out of nature that encoded biochemical primitives uh, from like transcriptional regulation to uh, termination to, you know, self-cleaving RNA to do some kind of cool insulation uh, of these components. And um, taking the view that you could almost understand this problem phenomenologically, um, like you could experimentally characterize components in isolation. And if you did a good enough job engineering those parts, you could then compose them in a new way and predict how they'd function. And so, uh, you know, there was an entire 
body of work, even before I you know, joined the lab on developing these parts uh, that encoded robust cellular functions, figuring out how to make them uh, resilient to you know, changes in genetic and cellular context. And so it ultimately came down to like, what's the simplest possible model that allows you to predict something new? So our approach at Asimov, well, first, I guess our goal at Asimov is to build an industry-grade computer-aided design platform for bioengineers uh, to enable them to uh, design and develop biotechnology products better, faster, cheaper. And so this is probably a separate question, but we spent a long time figuring out, well, how do you monetize that? How do you monetize a computer-aided design platform? There's not really a, a close kind of analog that you can point to. Um, where was like a, a clear kind of like technical need for that? And, uh, you know, what was a large and growing market? Uh, and ideally a, a, a somewhat clear go-to-market for a product. And so this product, uh, this computer-aided design platform is actually not just, you know, software. Um, it includes software and that's integrated with our own biology platform, which includes mammalian cell lines uh, that we develop and optimize at Asimov along with this synthetic biology toolbox, this library of genetic parts uh, that um, includes you know, DNA sequences that encode an array of cellular functions. And so that whole approach is actually the same approach uh, that we took with Cello, which was we had a very standardized cell line. That was a very specific strain of E. coli, actually from NEB. We had developed a library of genetic parts specifically in that cell type in E. coli, we had characterized everything there uh, so that we were able to get quantitative performance data and plug that into simulation tools, and then a software interface to integrate that together uh, to enable design. So the approach is uh, you know, philosophically the same, but of course, like the organism that we're working in is different and the applications uh, that we're focused on are slightly more general uh, than building like logic circuits. Uh, we wanna be able to design all types of functions and solve problems um, we're currently focused on therapeutic design and manufacture, so cell and gene therapies and biologics. And so there's all types of challenges that you see in industry that uh, we want to be able to solve. To give a bit more context and for the less technical folks in the audience, Alec, can you explain to them how is their life going to change and get better because of Asimov? So like biotechnology has already had uh, incredible impact. And what we're looking to do is accelerate that further because, you know, over the past several decades, uh, you know, of genetic engineering, and in many ways, it's not an engineering discipline. It's really been driven by trial and error. There's an infinite array of applications beyond that, right? Like the, the biotechnologies that have been developed so far are so primitive compared to like what we see in nature, right? Like nature gives us the most exquisite and elegant and complicated cellular systems. And we wanna be able to do as well as nature. I mean, that, to, to put it quite simply, like we want humans to be able to design systems as beautiful and elegant, as complex as nature can uh, through evolution and potentially even surpass it because nature of course has to use uh, you know, evolution as a way to design. And so you're often uh, limited to like local search like mutations and maybe you can take larger leaps through horizontal gene transfer and things like that. But you know, as designers, we're not limited to making like single point mutations and things like that. We can go far away in sequence space, but in order to do that, you need better computational models. You need tools to help you intelligently design uh, the genetics. And so, I mean, the biggest vision for us is just to accelerate biotechnology across the board, 
It is going to um, it is going to give us some of the most science fiction and uh, unimaginably you know world changing products out of you know any technology domain, right? Like a lot, a lot of people like to focus on semiconductors and smartphones, and of course that has transformed our world. But uh, we're made of biology. We eat biology. The things that we love more than anything in our lives are biological, right? They're not electronic. And so that's what we want to enable. We want to advance design. Let's pivot for a second and talk about some advice for founders. So the first thing I'd love you to give some advice on is about an academic spin out. You yourself are spun out of MIT. So do you have any advice and be as concrete as you can about something you would advise folks who are thinking of starting a company out of academia? One piece of advice is start thinking about it early. Uh, that's something I did not do. I decided to make uh, the switch to be an entrepreneur after finishing up. But when you're at a university, when you're at a school, you can, you can tap into all types of really cool stuff. Like, you know, not just like the network there is, uh, you know, probably one of the most dense um, and useful networks that you'll ever be a part of. You've got, you know, most universities are doing business plan competitions. That's a great way to get your feet wet. Some universities have venture mentoring services. So, you know, MIT has that as well. There's a ton of resources for entrepreneurs at universities. Take advantage of that. Start battle testing your idea. Start thinking about like, you know, commercial applications, uh, you know, before you finish up, right? You can typically like fit in a couple of key experiments along with the rest of your work. Even if you're focused on something basic and you've got some ideas about how to translate that, you know, most thesis advisors these days, I feel like are actually, uh, you know, pretty excited about, uh, you know, spinning companies out. And so spending, you know, just uh, some extra time de-risking some of the commercial aspects can go a long way when you go to fundraise. Um, you know, when you're in school, it's, you know, one of the best places to find a co-founder, right? So this is back to the network concept. I mean, one of the, I think the things that I've seen a few times that's one of the bigger challenges is like, sometimes we'll get a great team, but they're staggered. So like some people will graduate one year, others will graduate like two years later. And that's like often really hard because then some people are like fully committed full time other people still need to graduate. We need to figure out ways to solve that um, because I've seen it a couple of companies not form because of that type of thing. But the flip side of that is, of course, you meet those people. And uh, when the people do graduate, then if they're still excited about it, then you've got the team uh, ready to go. And then lastly, of course, is like, you know, universities are often, uh, you know, generally supportive about getting that technology out into the wild. And so it's also never too early to start working with like the TLO, the technology licensing office to figure out all of kind of the legal aspects of getting technology uh, out of the school. You are a technical founder. So it means that you've not been trained to think about business. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for other folks who maybe have a background in, in science and are thinking about starting companies. Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously biased, but technical founders are the best. And I think for like deep tech companies, they are like utterly crucial. Um, and it's kind of a superpower when you're a technical founder for the business side as well. Like, for example, if you've got like a technical solution, you need to find your champions in industry. And often those champions are technical people. And so if you can speak to those people with you know high bandwidth, that goes a long way. 
you can like jam on like, you know, cool ideas. You can like gossip about like some paper that just came out and like, whether it's like as big a deal as everyone's been making it out to be or not, like being a technical founder can really be a superhero from a business development perspective. So, you know, I'm, I'm not on every, uh, you know, commercial or business development call these days, but the ones that I do join are often when there's like a, a technical discussion and those are a ton of fun. I mean, technology's my passion, but it also is a great way to build like a bond with other geeks, right? Like other scientists, other engineers. So um, yeah, definitely don't feel bad for being a technical founder. Uh, that's like way better than like being an MBA. Not, not to like, you know, put down MBAs too much. And then all of the business stuff you can learn, right? Like the technical stuff is harder than the business stuff, uh, in my opinion. And, you know, I think a lot of the skills that you learn in grad school about like how to tell like a compelling story about your science, uh, you know, how to like choose a problem. All of those things are, you know, ha have parallels when you start a business. So, you know, I was fortunate enough to team up with a classmate of mine from MIT named Raja. He had prior entrepreneurial experience. So he brought some of that commercial aspect. So I definitely think there's value in finding people who complement your skill sets well, but you're going to need a technical founder if you're doing a, a deep tech startup for sure. What skill do you think was most foreign for you as a technical founder and how did you work to improve it? Management, uh, I think was the big one when you're a grad student, maybe you'll have like an undergrad and like, you'll like, you know, quote unquote, like manage them. Um, but uh, that's a pretty foreign concept. And I think, you know, I think it'd be actually pretty great if grad programs had classes on management that were maybe even like required. Working with people is incredibly rewarding. Everyone's <laughs> got their own personalities um, and figuring out how to like, you know, manage egos, how to like work on like personal and professional growth, uh, how to like diffuse conflict. All of that stuff uh, was something that kind of had to figure out as we went. My last question for you is about partners and customers. Do you have any advice on how you go around building those relationships and getting that pipeline for your business development going? Yeah. What, one of the, I think it was the first year that um, we had, yeah, I think it was the first year of the company uh, Raja, my co-founder and I, we went to Bio International, which is like this big trade show. And we just, we like, we had 90 meetings in three days. It was just utterly insane and brutal, um, but hugely valuable because we made a lot of, uh, you know, relationships and, um, so, you know, some of those termed in actual commercial partnerships. So definitely like the hustle is important. Uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta want to hustle a bit if you're starting a company, I already talked about, you know, building those connections with other technical people, finding your champions in the organization. You know, now that we've got like a bit more of a mature commercial team, you know, we've brought on business development people and, uh, you know, like in some ways they're like the adults in the room and they can tap into their networks, uh, you know, networks that, you know, Raj and I did not have access to. And that's really useful. But when you're first starting out, meeting people at conferences, uh, I love cold outbounds. I'm such a huge fan of cold outbounding. If you've got like a very specific thing that you're asking someone um, and then just, yeah, hustling at trade shows. <laughs> like that's how, that's how we closed our first deal was just like uh, bombarding people with like meeting requests and uh, you know, follow-up emails like five times in a row until they finally answered. Um, and then of course, over time you kind of ratchet up your credibility and, you know, people start to have like heard of you before you talk to them. And that makes the conversations like much easier to get going. 
but that happens over time. You know, early on, tapping into your network and hustling is the way to do it. Alec, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and Tony and our listeners. We are absolutely cheering for you and Asimov. If you haven't yet signed up for our Petri newsletter, go to our website, petri.bio, to stay connected.